grace and peace to you in God's name, friends. Amen. It's launch Sunday, right? That's what we're calling it. I'm happy to celebrate this day with all of you. And it might feel a little strange, right? It does. We're a 50-year-old congregation. We aren't really a real church, a new church. We've been meeting for worship every week, even as this weekend approached, right? Calling this a launch or even a relaunch, it, it does feel a little strange. But God's people have marked uh, similar events before. We read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah over this past summer, and we saw that as they came back out of exile, God's people, when they came back to Jerusalem to rebuild, marked their new beginning with worship and praise. They did so more than once. They had special worship when they returned and settled in the land. They had special worship to dedicate the foundation of the new temple. They had special worship to dedicate that temple once it was completed. More and more over their years of return, they celebrated every new milestone in their rebuilding. And they marked all of those different events to remind themselves of how good their God had been to them. Every new step in their renewal project was a gift from him. And likewise, as we move forward with our own restart project, we'll mark different events and progress. We're working on our building project plans, and when it comes time, we'll celebrate that as a gift given to us by God. Our 50th anniversary as a congregation is approaching in 2024, and we will celebrate that. And we can be sure that new ministries, new outreach plans will be part of our project. We'll celebrate those opportunities. All these things will be worth celebrating because every gift from God is worth celebrating. That's what this whole renewal project is, right? A gift from God. An opportunity to share his gospel with those who need to hear it. We do so with support from brothers and sisters in Christ who want to see our little church reaching out with the gospel to everyone we can reach here on Long Island. The very name of our church, Grace of God, gives witness to this fact. Our existence as a church, more than that, our existence as Christians, as believers, can only be understood as a gift from God. That's what grace means, undeserved, gift-giving love. Grace is an attitude. That's a way of viewing someone else with the default inclination toward compassion and love for them. It's the way that God looks at us and at our world. God's attitude of grace toward us is powerful. In grace, God is active. He acts. He works. And the way that God's grace works is something we can picture. As a part of our Restart Project here at Grace of God, we've talked about defining clearly what it exactly it is that we believe and teach, what exactly defines us. One part of that has been explaining what grace is. It's this gift-giving, undeserved love, and explaining how it works. The image on the cover of your bulletin today is an illustration of what you can call the grace process. This is how scripture describes what God's grace leads him to do and how that affects us. I want to talk to you about the four points arranged in that circle today. Gather, receive, go, and share. Gather. We gather because of God's grace, coming to hear from God, to hear from him and to ponder his word is contingent on his grace, his gift-giving love. Notice how the Apostle Paul talks about sharing the gospel with people in, his, in our sermon reading, Colossians 4. He asks the Colossian congregation to pray for us, for him and the other missionaries, that God may open a door for our message. Only with God opening the door for his message, only through God's generosity in bringing his word to people, can the gospel be shared? But we don't think this way naturally as humans. Our default assumption 
is to, to assume, well, if we want to find out something about God, we must have the power to do so. In our gospel reading, there's the man who gets up the expert in the law and comes to ask Jesus a question. We think of ourselves in the way that he does. He, he thought that it would be possible for him to figure out how to be a good enough person to inherit eternal life. And it doesn't sound all that prideful when he says it, right? He asks, what should I do? What should I do in order to please God? It's not that shocking a question. This is the default assumption all humans have. We think that not only could we approach God, we could also find out from him. What do we need to do to earn your favor, God? And we think that we would have the power to do so. But this is a profoundly wrong assumption. It's a dangerously wrong one. We humans by nature cannot approach God. And even if we could, our reaction would be the reaction Isaiah had in our first reading from Isaiah 6. Whoa, I am ruined. God is holy. I am not. I am a sinner who lives among sinners and whose whole life gives evidence of that fact. Isaiah is petrified as he's brought into God's throne room in a vision. We ought to feel the same way as we walk into church ready to hear God's word spoken to us. How can we gather around the word of a holy and perfect God, us sinners? This gets us into the second part of the grace process. We gather and we receive. God's grace is active as we are gathered. He opens the door for us to hear his word, to find a church and to find other Christians with whom we can ponder his message. And when he's gathered us in grace, he does two things. He has us hear law and gospel. Law, the message about sin, the message from God's word that shows our shortcomings and failures, our rebellions and transgressions. We hear God's law in all three of our readings this morning. When Isaiah, in the first reading, cries out about his own sinfulness, we ask ourselves, aren't we sinful like Isaiah? Do we have any more right to stand before God? He, Isaiah thinks about his lips, he says. He is a man of unclean lips. He thinks about the fact that He has said things he ought not have said. Can't we confess the same thing? If Isaiah the prophet was terrified to stand before the Holy God because of his unclean lips, woe to us. In our second reading, we hear law. As Paul tells the Corinthians there to keep all their words graceful, to have every conversation with every person be carefully thought out, to be offered with gentle wisdom. How often, we have to ask ourselves, don't we do exactly the opposite, right? How often don't we speak words that are brash and unthinking rather than considered and thoughtful? Right? How often don't we treat conversations as an opportunity to put ourselves and our opinions on center stage rather than seasoning our words with salt? So we may know how to answer every person, as Paul says. The picture there is of seasoning food to the taste of the person who's going to eat it. And that's how we as Christians ought to approach conversations. As an opportunity to give someone else what they need to hear, not what we think we need to say. We hear law in every portion of Scripture, and it's something that God intends for us to receive as we gather. God needs to show us our sin. He needs to make us aware of it. He causes us to receive the message of the law, because only by understanding our sin are we able to understand his love for us. This is the other thing we receive in our gathering around God's word. We receive the gospel. The law is the message about sin and about our transgressions, and the gospel is the message about God's solution for sin, Jesus. 
The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ died on behalf of us sinners. The gospel is not an encouragement to live better lives because of God's love. That's the law, even if it sounds nicer. The gospel is this message. What we could not do, obey the law, please God, Jesus did for us in our place. Not to show us what we would do to inherit eternal life, but to inherit it on our behalf and give it to us as a gift simply received by believing in him. That's it. That's the gospel and it's grace from God. It's his gift-giving, undeserved love shown in real time and real space for you. As God's son lived among us sinners and died on behalf of us sinners and rose to guarantee to us sinners that we would one day rise as well. The gospel is not a mere message. It's a proclamation from a victorious king. What the king proclaims becomes reality. The gospel brings our hearts to life out of despair and sin. It gives us confidence as we cling to this forgiveness promise. Gather and receive. Those are the first two components of our grace process. But what follows here, just like gathering and receiving doesn't necessarily naturally make sense to us, right? When we realize that we've received a gift from God, as we're gathered around his long gospel to receive those messages, well, naturally, we want to thank him for this gift. And we should do so, just like we write thank you cards for birthday presents. But what we are going to naturally always think is that thanking God will involve giving him something. Maybe it's the offering that we collect after the sermon at church. That's the thanks that he wants. Maybe it's the fact that we're here, that our worship is what's going to please him. Or maybe we'll give him our lives. Right? We'll get baptized, we'll commit our hearts to Jesus, we'll resolve to make our lives different or holy or better. God shows us that thanking him looks different from all of that. In fact, if our focus is on trying to give him something as we thank him, we're off base. Our Isaiah reading again shows us what thanks to God for his gifts looks like. After one of the angels brings Isaiah the burning coal from the altar, brings him forgiveness and life, touches his unclean lips and takes away his sin. God says, verse 8, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah gives God a reply that's rooted in thanksgiving. Here am I, send me. The third step of the grace process is go. When we look in scripture and ask, what does thanking God for his gift of salvation look like? We find that it's going, it's turning to our neighbor, and it's sharing with them what we've been given. That's the final part of the grace process. Go and share. God says in Psalm 50, the cattle on a thousand mountains are mine, the world is mine, and all that fills it. We have nothing that we can give him to thank him. Instead, we thank him by loving our neighbors, by going and sharing. Who is my neighbor? At the question that Jesus has asked in our gospel reading. And his answer is simple. Whomever you are in a position to help or to share with, that's your neighbor. Sometimes we make that definition far too broad. Right? We say something like, everyone is your neighbor. And yeah, that's potentially true. Right? But scripture focuses us, focuses us in. God in scripture focuses us in on the people who are near to us. Who is my neighbor? Most importantly, most immediately, my friends and my family are my neighbors. Right? Parents and children, brothers and sisters are neighbors to one another. We're placed directly in one another's lives by God to care for one another. Then our friends, our co-workers, our actual neighbors next door, right? Those are neighbors with whom we can also share what God has given us. Neighbor, scripturally, is best understood not as a category, 
in which we're supposed to lump every single person all at once, but it's a concept that applies in a new way at every moment of our lives. When you're talking with someone over lunch, that's your neighbor. You want to pay attention to them, to care about them, to focus on them, to make them the most important person to you in that moment. If you're on a rec league softball team, your neighbors are your teammates. How do you love them? Focus on the game. Play to the best of your ability. Maybe your neighbor is also the umpire, whom you're going to treat with respect even if you don't agree with her calls. That's love for neighbor. This is how we thank God for his love. We love others. But if you're listening, you should notice something, though. This go and share takes us back into a law message. Right? Here is what we should do. We should focus on our neighbors. We should care for them. We should love them. Even though we got here by means of the gospel, this is still law. And we have to recognize that we do this imperfectly. We have to beware the sinful heart that would make us think we're going to earn God's love or keep on earning God's love or stay in God's love by loving other people. That's dangerous. So the grace process isn't just four steps. You notice that this is arranged in a circle, a cycle. Gather, receive, go, share. Gather, receive, go, share. We gather and receive this law gospel message from God. He shows us our sin through his word. He shows us that we are imperfect and undeserving. Then he shows us our savior. He shows us that the relationship between him and between us, it's not contingent on our goodness, on our worth, on our ability, on our outward value. It's established by his son, Jesus, through the announcement of our forgiveness. Our relationship with God is grounded on something outside of us, is grounded on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. And with that focus outside of us, on Jesus, grace keeps us looking outside ourselves as we thank God for this gift. We don't look back at ourselves. Instead, we thank God by looking through Jesus and through the cross to our neighbors. We go and share. We look at everyone we encounter as someone for whom Christ died, someone who in grace God desires to save, and we love them. We share with them what we have, our time, our talents, our energy, and our message, our message about God's gift-giving love. Gather and receive Go and share. That's what grace looks like for us as our Savior God pours out his love on us. So by God's Holy Spirit, let's stay in that cycle each and every day of our lives until it's brought to an end. This cycle doesn't last into eternity. One day Jesus will come back and Jesus will take us to be home with him, will take us to sit forever at his wedding banquet where forever we will receive the gifts of God. Amen.